Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, thank you very, very much for subscribing to the channel as you've been doing in your thousands, actually. Uh, but please, uh, to those of you who haven't, do subscribe, won't you? Because it, what it means is that you will get notifications of each program as they come up. It's very, very simple. You just go to the subscribe button, click on that. And next door, there is a blue bell. And if you click on that, that means you get notifications of each of our programs as they come up, what, three a week now. So uh, please do that. Um, now, I'm very pleased that my guest today is uh, one of the new MPs who came in in 2019. Uh, Gareth Bacon is MP for Orpington. Before that, he was on the London Assembly for nine years, the last five of which he was uh, head of the Conservatives there. Um, he's also part of a new group which was started by Sir John Hayes called the Common Sense Group. They've just got a new book out, which you can see the cover of here. It's called Common Sense, Conservative Thinking in a Post-Liberal Age. Um, thanks very much for coming on, Gareth. Um, you've contributed one of the essays, there's a number of essays in this book, and yours is about <coughs> wokeism mm. and how we can defeat it. I mean, I just thought it's, it's best, you know, because if we define this, because a lot of people, uh, according to a recent poll, uh, didn't quite even understand what the word meant. How would you define woke wokery? Well, wokery, I, I think it has its origins in, in the hard left. Um, it's broadly anti-capitalist, anti-Western, um, anti-conservative, and I would um, submit anti-British. Um, it seeks to uh, completely change our understanding of our, of our national identity. Um, it's intolerant, uh, borderline totalitarian, I think. Um, it seeks to impose censorship on different points of view. Uh, it would see itself uh, as a progressive, inclusive uh, worldview that seeks out prejudice. Um, but unfortunately, um, that doesn't really tally with how its protagonists uh, behave. Um, I think it's quite sinister. Um, and I think it is, culturally, I think it is a, a very big threat to our way of life. Would you say, I mean, for example, take, we're recording this, uh, the, the day we're recording this, there have been three examples of what you might call wokery. On the one hand, we've had a picture of the Queen taken down in an Oxford college. Mm. We've had increasing um, protests at the number of players taking the knee mm -hmm. as well. And also there has been, for example, the journalist Julie Birchall uh, has just been um, banned, or I think, from Twitter, and she's lost her job at The Telegraph for something that she wrote a, a joke. Um, would you say that those are all examples of wokery? Yes, I would. I mean, to take the first one, the, the, the portrait of the Queen at Magdalen College, that's been taken down because she represents uh, recent colonialism. Um, and that is deemed to be it's one of the great sins of, of, uh, of wokery, or they perceive that as a great sin. Well, the Queen is our head of state and has been for um, almost 70 years. Um, she is widely loved, I think, and admired across the country. She is the symbol of Great Britain. Now, she was queen when we had the remnants of the British Empire, because, of course, she assumed the throne after the war, and the empire was in the process of um, disintegrating at that time. But what the, the woke left have done is they've taken words like colonial and they've superimposed the word racist on it. So mm. it's now become interchangeable. And I completely reject the idea that the British Empire was founded on racism. If it was, then why do we have a Commonwealth? Mm. Where's Germany's Commonwealth, for example? Mm. You know, if the British Empire was based on um, military, um, military conflict, uh, based on enslaving people, stealing their wealth, 
then you would understand people kicking back against it. Now that was the very definition of what Nazi Germany did during World War II, which is unsurprising, where they have no commonwealth. But we have a commonwealth made up of, of scores of nations who choose to be part of it. It's entirely voluntary, isn't it? Yeah. So why would we have, why would they want to be part of an organisation that yeah. reminded them of their enslavement, if that indeed is what the British Empire was about? It wasn't, of course. The British Empire was about trade. So the idea that colonialism is equivalent to racism is something that I think is completely objectionable. Um, and it's an example of how woke tries to appropriate language for its own purposes. So queen, colonial, empire, racism. Uh, and I think that's appalling. And the irony of that, of course, is that uh, Oxford University is one of the country's great institutions. Mm -hmm. it's, it's centuries old. Um, and these students who are benefiting from an education at Oxford that will stand them in good stead in their future years are rejecting one of the biggest cornerstones of, of our country and, it, and its institutions, i.e. rejecting the monarch. And I think that that's absolutely appalling. The question about um, taking the knee uh, and whether footballers should take the knee or not. Well, of course, this all sprang up after the Black Lives Matter protests a year ago um, when football returned uh, after the, 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 uh, the break imposed by the lockdown, the first lockdown. Um, players were playing in front of empty stadiums. Um, and they seem to think that taking the knee was something that should, should happen. Um, and since crowds have started coming back in, it's been very notable that obviously people have been starting to boo. Now, I think the reason why people are booing it is because they see taking the knee as a symbol of solidarity with Black Lives Matter, the organisation. Um, and there's a problem with that because Black Lives Matter is a hard left political organisation. Mm. Um, it puts at the centre of its... Uh, raison d'etre, something that nobody argues with, because of course black lives do matter, every life matters, nobody says that they don't, mm -hmm. uh, and so you can't contend that. But simultaneously, they're also advocating destroying capitalism, defunding the police, overturning the family unit. There's a strong strain of anti-Semitism in some of the stuff they put on social media. And taking the knee is seen as a gesture of solidarity with the organisation, not necessarily with the anti-racist sentiment. Now, in football, the, the idea of driving racism out has been something that's been there for a very long time. Mm. Kick it out is what it had been called. Kick out racism was what I think it was called before. And nobody argues with that. Everyone agrees that that is, is you know, the way you should go. But players kneeling down in a, a gesture of subservience before a game, I think, is starting to get a bit preachy. Mm. Um, and I, I do understand why some people are booing it. It's not because they're racist. It's not because they are pro-racism. It's because they are against this gesture which they associate with a particularly unpleasant organisation. But isn't it also that uh, the implicit in a lot of the Black Lives Matter stuff, uh, well, not just implicit, quite explicitly in identity politics, it's this idea that you are racist, you know, whether you know it or not, or whether, you know, by sheer virtue of maybe being white or whatever it is. Mm. And so people are sort of reacting almost against that, aren't they? I mean, they're also being react against, they're reacting against being lectured to. Yes, I, I think that that's perfectly true. See, I, I genuinely believe that most people in this country are quite happy to rub along with everyone else. Uh, we just want to get through our lives. We want to think about feeding our children, uh, our children's prospects, our, you know, how work is going, you know, just earning our lives, improving our family's existence. Um, but the, the woke mentality is to impose their values on you and force you to confront them. And if you don't necessarily agree with everything they're saying, you instantly get branded as something. So it's not enough not to actually do racist things or say racist things. You have to actually attack racism mm -hmm. and go out of your way to find it and, and uh, oppose it. Otherwise, you are yourself a racist. Mm -hmm. And that I don't accept that mm -hmm. at all. And I think people are, are getting a bit tired of being branded racist simply because they're not taking the knee to a militant organisation. 
that does not equate to racism. And I, I do think, I, I, I'm inclined to agree with what you've just said, that people are tired of being lectured and accused of things when they haven't done anything. Um, you know, if you're born with white skin, that doesn't make you a racist. It doesn't make you a white supremacist. It doesn't mean that you've got any kind of uh, privilege over anybody. Uh, I mean, the idea of white privilege is, is one of these sinister things that has come about. I mean, you know, I think about Irish immigrants that came to this country from Ireland. Um, what privilege did they enjoy? Mm. I think about the desperate poverty there was in Victoria and London. Were these people privileged? I, I rather think not. Some of my colleagues in, in the House of Commons who went to schools like Eton, uh, who are black, um, am I more privileged than them? I don't think mm. so. Um, you know, and I don't mind the fact that they've had the opportunity to, to go to these places. Um, but you know, th this sort of attack on people, it's actually, if you flip it, if we were to say that someone who's born black must have a whole load of beliefs and understanding, we would be accused, rightly, of racism. Yes, yes. And equally, yes. these, these same charges on the other side of the coin are aimed at white people, uh, and that's not racist. Yes. So this, this sort of, it's an unnecessary friction mm. that I think that is, is not helpful, actually, because it's, it's dividing people, it's pushing them apart rather than pulling them together. Um, in your essay, you, know, you, you, you talk about uh, what's happening with work, which seems to be gathering pace, I would say, and mm. people often think, oh, well, you know, I think it's peaked. You hear this a lot. I think it's peaked. I think there's quite a pushback. Um, in fact, and if something happens, you think, oh, actually, no, there's no tipping point. It's just getting worse. But what, what are your suggestions for defeating it or, mm. or challenging it? Well, there's, there's a lot, and, and I've put various into the essay. I mean, I think... For, example, for a start, organisations that are the beneficiary of UK taxpayer money have an obligation not to attack uh, our country, our history, our institutions. Right. So we've got a whole range of, of um, charitable organisations, English Heritage would be one example, um, that get money from the government uh, and then do massive audits on slavery. And this is the other thing that, that Woke likes to talk about is slavery a lot. Um, with an attempt to try and make out that Britain is and always has been a deeply racist country. Um, so that sort of thing needs to be pushed back against, I think. Uh, the other thing that we should do, I mean, the woke mentality is very insecure. It doesn't like open debate, which is why it seeks to censor people. Mm. That's why reading lists get altered. That's why people get no platform. That's why they try to cancel people on social media, uh, because they don't like having to have an open debate. Because when you flush them into the open, a lot of what they're saying has absolutely no intellectual grounding at all. Um, they can't hold their argument particularly without start shouting insults. Uh, and they tend to lose the argument, and so they're scared of that. So that's why they try to cancel people. So I would encourage much more open debate. The third thing is freedom of speech. Um, particularly in universities now, we are finding freedom of speech being completely closed down. University used to be where you go to broaden your mind, to explore new ideas, to test mm. theories, to develop ideas. And that's how new ideas and new, new theories uh, are actually creatives by bouncing arguments off one another. Well, you can't do that if you're only allowed to occupy a very narrow terrain of ideological thought. So if you cancel freedom of speech, you're actually, it's a, it's a very totalitarian, sinister thing because you're preventing new thinking from coming along. And I put in my chapter that, you know, these, these things are, they have sinister overtones of some of the activities we saw in the totalitarian dictatorships in the first half of the 20th mm. century. You know, insecure ideological beliefs try to stamp out others. You know, and, and that is what we're starting to see. So the government uh, have got a freedom of speech bill, uh, which is aimed at universities uh, in, the que in the Queen's speech. It's a matter of great regret that that's necessary. But it Amazing, is necessary. Actually. Yeah. In, in, in Great Britain, yeah. you know, this bastion of democracy, yeah. we have to now start legislating for freedom of speech. Mm. 
The thing about freedom of speech, it matters most when it's controversial. Mm. Because that's, you know, I, I, I'm perfectly comfortable listening to people whose views I don't agree with because they're entitled to express them. Um, you know, I will then either choose to listen to them or I will argue with them, but that's fine. They can't be silenced or cancelled. And that should apply in the other direction as well. Mm. You mentioned as well in the piece uh, the Equalities Act. Mm. Um, can you tell us what the relevance is there? You said this would have to be uh, amended in some way. Why well, the, the case law that's followed, so the Equalities Act is a piece of statute, um, and it's, there's various different things about the protected characteristics in there. But the way it's been interpreted by case law since 2010 um, has meant that people, if they feel that they are, it's, it's about feelings rather than actuality, if they feel that someone has attacked them on the basis of one of their protected characteristics, then that is what has happened. Um, and the woke warriors are now pouncing on that, and they are using the legalities of the case law to underpin what they are doing. And, and that is one of the ways that the woke ideology has managed to impose itself on society at such speed. Because you've got big organisations now um, who are terrified of being sued or accused of anism, whether it be racism, feminism, uh, sorry, not feminism, sexism, etc., um, underpinned by the Equality Act. So right. I, legal definitions of terminology, I think, are now required. So amendments to the Equality Act to change that, to change the case law that's followed, I think are, are one of the ways that we could do this. Because the legal interpretation of it has led to a whole load of case law which underpins the woke position. And I don't think that was the intention of Parliament when the Equality Act was passed, um, but it has led to a legal underpinning for a lot of the abuses that we're seeing now. Is, is this an idea that uh, basically, or hate crime in a way, mm. uh, requires no evidence? It's just purely yeah. on perception, isn't yep. it? And also this phenomenon of non-crime hate incidents. Yes. Um, I understand that the Home Secretary recently said that these should, these should not be put down on any kind of register anymore. Is that actually happening? Well, it's not been passed into law, um, but it is the declared intention of the, of the Home Office is to move in that direction. Now, one of my colleagues wrote a chapter on this because he himself has been subject to it. Um, and this is a, a particularly sinister mm. development. Mm. The idea that someone should be logging down things that are not crimes um, but could be construed by somebody as hate, mm. but not over the edge into being crime. Why are they doing that? Mm. I mean, what, what, is, what, does that, what purpose does that serve? Mm. What does it achieve? Um, it is a very sinister mm. approach to law and order. And it's not as though our police don't have enough to do. Mm. Um, you know, we, they are increasingly overburdened. And having to keep records of things like this, uh, I think, is a major problem. It, either there is a crime or there isn't a crime. If there isn't a crime, the police have no action to take. That's how it should be. Um, but with this, it's straying into territory it really shouldn't. With the police generally, I mean, the police are covered in the, in, the, uh, in the book, the collection of essays. Um, there is this sense in which people are very concerned at the increasing politicisation of the police. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, having been on the Police and Crime Committee on the London Assembly, I, I, I think there's no question about that. But, but um, how would that be? challenged how would that be corrected do you think well i don't fully accept the idea that the police are being overly politicized mm. um, however you can't divorce policing from politics and i think certainly since the mcpherson report um, way back um, in in the at the turn of the century the metropolitan police particularly have been very keen to try to show themselves not to be a, a racist organization um, which is laudable, but I think that has had consequences in the way that they have behaved in certain circumstances. 
The advent of social media, which is another tool that the woke activists use to very great effect, um, has also had an impact on the, on the police. Um, and it's perfectly possible to argue that the police have reacted to or tried to prevent adverse social media and media uh, criticism with some of the things that they have done. So as an example, Operation Midland, mm. uh, the investigation of supposedly historic sexual offences by leading establishment figures, was based on a complete fantasy mm. um, by somebody who was a proven liar who is now in prison. Mm. Um, and the police took it all at face value because they were terrified of being accused of not taking it seriously because mm. of the uh, fallout from Jimmy Savile and things like that. Other things that the police have done, um, so people who are charged with sex offences uh, their name finds its way into the public domain. And I remember having an exchange with a former deputy commissioner of the Metropolitan Police about this. Um, and I put it to him that this was not the way to be going because either the state can make its case with the evidence it has or it can't. Mm. Because his argument was that, well, if you put these names out in the public domain, it might encourage other people to come forward who might not otherwise have done. Mm. But that's not how you do it. You don't throw a Hail Mary and throw this person to the wind mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know let justice take its course. Um, because the stress and strain on that person is incredible. If the state can't make its case, then there isn't a case. Mm. And this sort of thing shouldn't happen. But on the flip side of that, so we have, um, if you look back to, say, the Sarah Everard vigil uh, on Clapham Common, uh, appalling crime uh, was committed, unfortunately, by a serving Metropolitan Police officer who has now admitted to that crime, uh, and a vigil wanted to take place. Well, in normal circumstances, there would be no issue with that at all, but we had coronavirus restrictions. Mm. Now, the coronavirus doesn't care whether you're at a vigil. It doesn't care whether you're in church or a football stadium or on the tube. If people are in close confines, there is a good chance that the virus will pass, which is why those restrictions were put in place and into law. The police were put in a very invidious position there because what are they supposed to do? Um, you know, you can have this vigil. We understand, they understood, uh, the deep sensitivity around why people would gather at that vigil. And the vigil went on all day, and for the most part, it was fine. Um, but right at the end, um, people wanted to start making speeches and everyone huddled up and that was when um, the police tried to break it up and it ended up in the scenes that we saw on social media. The police then got castigated for this, for their insensitivity and their heavy-handed. But what were they supposed to do? The law is the law. The law was as it was passed by Parliament. The police had said in advance, please don't come to this because if people breach social distancing we'll have to do something to break it up. That was then upheld in the High Court and everybody knew that. Everyone knew that in advance. But the problem we have with the police is that they often, I think they're too sensitive to the way they are covered in the media. And part of the problem there is that they don't feel, I don't think, that they have got political top cover for the job that they need to do. Um, and the Mayor of London would prove that point, I think, because he went public with his criticisms of the Commissioner um, in terms of what she said to him afterwards, quite how she can uh, have a working relationship with him after the way he threw her under the bus. Mm. Um, that's a problem for them. Um, but I would certainly have a problem working with him after what he said in public because all he was interested in was his election prospects. Mm. So he went after the police. So the police have got a very difficult job to do. Can you remind us of what he actually said about Well, he said that her explanation didn't satisfy him or, or words to that effect. He was mm. very much condemnatory mm. uh, in what he said to her uh, or said about her because he, he said, I'll, I'll be asking for um, an accounting of this from the commissioner. And then he came out and said, I'm not satisfied with what she's told me. Mm. And that's not working together. No. I think the thing is, Gareth, is that uh, f from the perspective of a lot of people who, who watch, for example, uh, they would not necessarily disagree with you on the Sarah Everard thing, but they would say, but in that case, but why then do the police seem to 
happily dance with Extinction Rebellion or take the knee with Black Lives Matter. Yep. And there's this feeling, so that is what, I, when I say politicization, mm. that is what I'm really getting yep. at. And I think you, you've touched on a couple of good points there because, and, and these are questions that I've had in conversation with very senior police officers. Um, if you're wearing the Queen's uniform, you're supposed to police without fear or favor. And that's really important, fear or favor. Mm. You can't be seen to be favoring political sides because once you do that, then you've, you've lost your authority. Mm. So people dancing with Extinction Rebellion, people skateboarding Extinction Rebellion, taking the knee at a Black Lives Matter march, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is a very bad advertisement for the police. There was a young police officer uh, a couple of weeks ago who was at the Palestinian mm. march who shouted out about free Palestine. Well, she's wearing the uniform. And I think nothing's happened to her. I think she's, uh, I think there's uh, disciplinary inquiries are, are ongoing. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, she's a young probationer, but she should be investigated for that. I personally think she should be in a lot of trouble for that. Mm. But that should apply across mm. the board, mm. regardless of rank. Mm. Mm. So when you have senior police officers in uniform taking the knee, that's a political statement, a political gesture. Mm. Um, when you have junior police officers taking the knee, um, at protests, that's a political statement. Um, and police should stay away from this because mm. they are supposed to be neutral. They are supposed to enforce the law, mm. not visibly take sides. Mm. And I think those are, are very bad developments. And I know the police want to be seen um, as uh, a more friendly organization than they might have been seen in the past, but they really mustn't blur the lines here. Their job is to enforce the law. Mm. And if they're there in their uniform, they are representing the state they're representing the Queen, mm. um, they should not be taking part in anything that could be construed as politically partisan, because then that inhibits their, their ability to actually enforce the law impartially. You mentioned there about uh, Sadiq Khan and, uh, and the Commissioner Cressida Dick. Um, I should explain, by the way, um, Gathwood's on the London Assembly and I was at Johnny Come Lately in, I joined him then, but um, so we were sort of sitting relatively near each other, won't be no, we most question time. That place was pretty much the mothership of woke, wasn't mm. it, really? Well, there, there were some notable <laughs> exceptions, I would say, uh, Peter. But yes, I mean, the, the other political parties, so the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and Labour, were much closer to what we would say is, is the woke ideology. And, and Sadiq Khan embodies much mm. of the woke ideology. Um, but there was some uh, there was some resistance. Obviously, the Conservative group um, doesn't really go with that. And, uh, and yourself and your colleague from UKIP um, were sort of notably resistant. Mm. Indeed, I remember your very um, uh, interesting exchange with Sadiq Khan about statues, mm. uh, which, which I gather is now doing doing the rounds on social media to yeah. the, the, the tunes of Land of Hope and Glory. So <laughs> it's, it's got about a million views. Yes, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? <laughs> um, so yes, I mean, you know, I, I think because woke is very much a left wing thing and City Hall is uh, certainly on the left of the spectrum. Um, you know, and, and I think a lot of the people that work at City Hall don't necessarily regard themselves as left wing. They just think that, well, we're the mainstream middle, like much of London does, mm. like the BBC does, for example. Um, but there's no doubt about it that they're, they're on the left of the spectrum. Uh, and there is a lot of woke ideas in there. You obviously is, were effectively leader, well, leader of the opposition to, to Khan on the assembly. What do you, what do you make of him? Of, of Sadiq Khan? Yeah. Um, uh, in, in private, he can actually be, a, a, you know, occasionally he can be quite, uh, quite reasonable. Uh, and sometimes I think, well, maybe I've misjudged you. Maybe you're not such a bad guy. Uh, and then he'll say or do something in public. And I think, oh, you know, what is the matter with you? 
He's a very political creature. Um, he's very interested in his own position. He likes, I think, the platform that being mayor mm. of London gives him. Uh, he likes the attention. I don't think he's... The impression I always got in the five years that he was mayor, that I was still there, I never got the impression he actually wanted to do the job much. He Funny, wasn't yes, about I, outcomes. I know what you mean. Yeah. He was about positioning. He was about attacking the government on yeah. everything. He was. It was almost like a running commentary mm. of what he perceived to be government failings. Brexit dominated a lot of his time. And, and he could argue plausibly that Brexit would have an impact on London, therefore he needs to have a view on it. But it's spilled over all the time into party political attacks. And that's what he was using his position for. You know, so if you look at his house building programme that he likes to boast about, the truth of the matter is he's built 17, he's completed 17,000 houses in five years. Mm. That, mm. That's negligible. Mm. You know, that's making no difference at all. Mm. Um, you know, he hasn't got a grip, got grips with knife crime. Uh, that spiked massively and carried on going up throughout his five years as mayor. You know, key tangible deliverables he isn't delivering. Mm. Um, he likes the profile. He's not so interested in the day job. Mm. Um, and he can be quite, I think, unnecessarily nasty and unpleasant. Mm. I think the way that he treated some assembly members was over the line in terms of it, it just didn't need to be like that. Um, so he, he can be, on occasion, I think he can be quite a small man in every way. Um, and I think I think he should be a bigger man in the job that he's got. Why do you think, therefore, that he got re-elected, Gareth? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, I mean, because honestly, <clears throat> most people, you know, the one thing you came across was uh, he can't possibly be. You know, we've got shocking crime, all of these things, um, and also London very beleaguered. London, you know, people leaving London, things like that. Well, uh, London is tribally Labour uh, in in great great swathes of it. And if you look at, leave aside the, the mayoral election and the assembly election and just look at, count up the number of councillors mm. for each political party, the number of members of parliament, the number of councils that are, owned, that are run by each, each political party. Um, and you can see that he was starting with a very big advantage right from the off. And I think he worked out, he ran a very similar campaign to the one that he did in 2016. The key difference was that this time he had a record to defend. But he didn't do a great deal in public, did he? I mean, I, I, I remember seeing two hustings on television, one on BBC and one on ITV. Um, he might have done one or two more, but I didn't see them. That was pretty much it. There mm. wasn't a great deal else. So mm. he approached it with, the, uh, I think, the objective that as long as I don't frighten the horses, so say or do anything particularly outlandish, I'm going to win mm. because I've got the inbuilt advantage. Mm. And sure enough, that's what happened. I mean, in 2016, the only policy difference that he was really offering was what he called his um, fares freeze, which turned out to be a partial fares freeze. Mm. Um, that was the only point of difference, really. Everyone else agreed that we need more affordable housing. Everyone else agrees that we need to crack down on, on crime, et cetera, et cetera. But he was going to freeze transport fares. Mm. And that was the only real differential. And of course, mm. that's caused Transport for London some financial problems. So I think he won, not because he is Sadiq Khan. I think he won because he was the Labour candidate in a city that still has uh, a very large Labour vote. His, his numbers went down quite a lot, but I think he started with a big advantage and, and maintained it. Do you think, I mean, do you have any truck with the idea, you know, Orpington is a London constituency, isn't it? Your mm. constituency. Do you have any truck with the idea, which is sort of doing the rounds a bit, that, you know, the whole idea of mayors and assemblies is, you know, uh, a bit dubious, really. You know, it's just a layer of government we, we don't need. I mean, do you think it's an important role? It's an important role and it has an important, um, as a figurehead, it's, it's very important. Mm. And I think all three mayors have brought their own personality to it. Mm. Uh, Ken Livingstone was it's the only job he ever wanted in politics. It was a destination mm. job for him. 
and he got the institution up and running. Uh, you know, he introduced policies like, such as the congestion charge and, and whatnot um, that people you know, can either like or dislike, but you can't argue that Ken Livingston put the institution on the map. Uh, Boris came along and he gave it a bit of bounce, I think. There was a lot of optimism about how Boris did the job and he, he sort of projected London internationally. Mm. Um, and he, you know, he was fortunate that the Olympic Games was coming to London and at the beginning of his second term they took place. And that, that was, I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced anything that had such a national feel-good factor mm. as the Olympics. And, and I think Boris uh, benefited by that. Sadiq Khan has, has changed it a bit. I, th- I find his uh, reign at City Hall to be a much more negative experience in the sense that he's, it's just constantly critical. Nothing's mm. ever good. It's, mm. it's always looking on the dark side of life mm. rather than the bright side of life. To the guts of your question, do we need uh, mayors? Um, the unintended, there, there is an argument for them because they can attract inward investment. They can drive change. Uh, on a more localised level than, say, Whitehall might. The weak side of it is that it loosens the fabric of our nation. There is no argument in my mind that devolution of power to Scotland and Wales has loosened the fabric of the United Kingdom. Um, the rollout of additional metro mayors uh, hasn't helped. So in a national pandemic, an emergency health situation, we had reports of negotiations taking place between the Prime Minister and the metro mayors of Manchester and London mm. about where they mm. should go in terms of lockdown and what financial support they'd be given. Mm. Negotiations. Mm. What, what nego- they're not a sovereign state. Mm. They should be taking orders, mm. not negotiating. Mm. And you know, so this, this all adds to confusion, to doubt. It undermines uh, the sanctity of, of the nation. Um, and I, I th- personally, I would prefer to turn the clock back Mm. Um, and to get back to Britain being a, a unified state mm. and not have these things because I think the political consequences outweigh the benefits. There are benefits, but there are also political consequences. And personally, I'm unconvinced that the benefits outweigh the consequences. Just to go back to the book a bit, um, you know, a lot of, uh, I agree with huge amounts in it. Obviously, I should say it does cover every sort of subject. I mean, as I say, immigration and, and education and, and uh, obviously woke woke agenda um, there are about 60 people in the group aren't there mm. 60 MPs and peers um, how influential are you uh, it, have you had any successes for example yeah I think we have um, so uh, Oliver Dowden in particular in the culture space um, has really stepped up in some regards um, regarding things like the institutions that are being funded by the government about sort of uh, really sort of setting down uh, where they should go. We have been uh, getting in touch with a lot of these institutions as well, um, and they are quite willing to come and meet us. Really? Um, and we are very direct with them. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think in the longer term, that is, is putting a marker down too. Senior government ministers pay attention uh, to what's coming out of the Common Sense Group. You know, we've had a number come to address us and listen to us. Um, and I think, you know, it is having an impact, I, I think. Um, and, and also further afield than that. So I, I did a, what we call an adjournment debate, which is a members of parliament can apply to have debates as the House is rising for the, for the day and a minister will come in to reply to the debate. They're not hugely well attended, as you can imagine, because they tend to be at the end of the parliamentary day. And, and by that point, people have voted and they've, they've had enough. But mine was about, it was about woke, um, and it was about uh, Sadiq Khan's commission to uh, investigate and topple statues around London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, as the, the mover of the adjournment debate, get to, to make a, a lengthy speech, and then the minister will reply, and other members within the half an hour that's allotted to it can also contribute. Um, and we put that on YouTube, and uh, 
quite a not large number of people have written to me mm. thanking me for standing up and saying those things because they thought that no one in Westminster represented their views because social media has created this impression that the woke view is the commonly held view and it really isn't. Mm. You know, Twitter gets things wrong most of the time. Mm. If Twitter is to be believed in aggregate, we would never have had Brexit. Mm. Boris would never have become prime minister. The Conservative Party would not have won the last general election mm. because all of these things, the aggregate view on Twitter was these things are just won't happen. Yes. Um, and the power of social media shouldn't be underestimated because it creates an impression in people that aren't used to being on the receiving end of it that this is massive outpouring of anger and uh, whatever about whatever it happens to be. Uh, and they make concessions to it. And this is how woke steals march. Um, so we've been pushing against that. So me standing up and doing that adjournment debate, um, the book that has, has come out setting out uh, some alternative positions, things that other MPs are saying in Parliament, is starting to push back on this. I think woke has managed to steal the march for too long. Mm. And what you're now seeing is the beginning of a pushback against it. It's by no means, I don't think we've reached peak woke yet. I don't think we've turned the tide yet. Mm. I think it would take a lot more to do that mm. and a lot of the woke ideas I mean when I was growing up um, some of them are rehashes of things that I saw back in the 1980s and in those days they were just dismissed as the loony left mm. but they didn't have the tool of the social media to broadcast their views to a much wider audience now they do mm. and it creates the impression wrongly that this is the majority view it isn't yes it's not although I, I would just maybe add uh, a bit to that in, in that it seems to me that you've got Twitter and social media yes of, of course but it is the speed with which our institutions mm. have capitulated or indeed it's actually coming from within mm. uh, whether it's a national trust right through to the Royal College of Music yeah. and instruments and things. This is what people say, where has this come from? Mm. You know, where is this? And I just wonder, you also talk about the BBC in the book, not not you but one of your uh, fellow writers. Uh, the BBC should be broken up because the BBC is the citadel of a lot of this. Yes. Um, are you impatient with the government? I mean, in, in, in the sense that the government talked about decriminalising the licence fee. But so far as I know, they've kind of, that's not happening now. Is that right? Well, it hasn't happened yet. I mean, there's, the charter is due for renewal and there will be a, another conversation about that um, coming up in the very near future. Right. I'm not an advocate of decriminalisation because if you simply decriminalise it, the BBC can then take you to civil courts to chase you for it. So you end up with a bigger bill. It's like not paying a parking fine. If you don't pay a parking fine, you won't get a criminal record, but you'll be chased through the civil courts and you may end up with a huge, big fine with court costs and everything else. And decriminalising it, particularly for the over 75s, might mean that they end up in an even worse position financially mm -hmm. than, um, than if they just had to pay the, had to pay the charge, had to pay the um, licence fee. Um, my personal preference will be to examine whether the BBC needs to exist in its current form at all anymore. Right, okay. And if it does, then... Yeah. You know, I think there is an argument for it to be a subscription service. And the reason mm. for that is that the BBC is not impartial. It pretends that it is, but it isn't. Mm. Um, as you said yourself, it's been at the forefront of pushing some of these woke ideas. Um, it certainly doesn't act like the British Broadcasting Corporation. It seems to see its job as criticising mm. the British state at every opportunity. Uh, and we've had umpteen examples from Brexit and beyond mm. Mm. of panels being loaded in one direction um, of... For example, people talking about the National Health Service, criticising government managing of the National Health Service, you'll get a number of people who might be doctors or nurses or so on, who then it turns out they are doctors and nurses, but they're also members of the Labour Party. Yes, yes. And that's never acknowledged. Yeah. So you get a view uh, that this is the view of the National Health Service, and it turns out, no, it's not. Actually, it's a party political view. Um, and stuff like that, I don't think, is, is quite good. But the main point, of course, is that when the BBC was set up, there was one broadcaster, one channel. 
Um, and this was the way to make it work. And that's that was perfectly fine. Now there's a whole myriad of alternatives available to people. Mm. One of my colleagues put it very well in the house when he stood up and said, when I go to buy my morning paper, I will choose the Telegraph or the Daily Mail or whatever I want. Um, if I wanted to read The Guardian, I would choose to buy The Guardian, mm. but I choose not to. So why, when I'm wanting to watch whatever I want to watch on television, mm. am I obliged to pay a compulsory tax to get Guardian-type views fed to me through the broadcast media when I don't want them? Mm. That's unarguable. Mm. There's a multitude, especially with, with online streaming now. There are so many different sources for people to get their information. Do we need the BBC in the form that it was put in in the 1940s? And you know, if, if it goes down a subscription model and it wants to continue to broadcast the sort of views that it does now, well, that, that will be up to them. How, how popular is your view in the Conservative Parliamentary Party, would you say, about the BBC? I think there are a range of views. I think um, amongst backbenchers, I think my view is, is probably in the majority. Mm. Uh, it, isn't, uh, it certainly isn't unanimous. Um, th there are some, some defenders of the BBC. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I, I used to be a great advocate of the BBC. I used to really like the BBC's output. I thought it was very high quality. Um, I thought it was much more impartial than it is now. Um, you know, and I, there's a lot of good stuff that it did. But it's become just so, the balance has tilted so much that, uh, that I now don't think it's capable of reforming itself back to what it, where it should be. And if it mm. can't do that, then I think it should lose the license fee and should go to a mm. subscription model. Finally, uh, uh, Gareth, you, you came into Parliament at a kind of rather a weird time because you came mm. in in 2019 and then bang, you know, the following year we went into this lockdown thing. Well, how has it been? I mean, how, has it, how has it affected you as an MP, this whole thing? I mean, has it, has it sort of had the effect of making you more remote? I mean, because you can't, you know, I, I, I just as purely anecdotally, some like MPs that I, I heard of felt so frustrated and so far from the actual centre of things mm. because of the physical restrictions. Well, uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, the first thing is I, I hope that my election to Parliament is entirely unconnected with the pandemic right. uh, breaking out. Um, but yeah, it's been a strange introduction because, uh, I mean, we were elected um, on the 12th of December. So our first day in Parliament was the following Monday and we did a week and then we went into uh, Christmas recess. Um, I think I got my office probably the end of January, around about then. Mm -hmm. um, so that's when my staff were able to move in and we started functioning. Uh, and then of course we went into lockdown within six or seven weeks. So we haven't really experienced parliament as it normally would be. Mm -hmm. So the social areas in parliament, the chamber itself, you can't get into the chamber unless you're on the call list. You have to apply through a ballot to get onto the call list. And so that's a lottery and in invariably the odds are against you. Right, right. Um, and because of the need for social distancing, you can't just go in. You can't intervene in debates as you used to be able to. You can't, what we call bobbing. So you'll have seen at Prime Minister's Question Time in normal times, that whenever the Prime Minister finishes his answer, you see lots of MPs across the chamber stand up. Those will be people that are not on the order paper. They're trying to catch the speaker's eye in the hope that he might ask them mm. To a question towards the end if they can sort of uh, jump in. You can't do any bobbing at the moment because unless you're on the call list you can't go in. Um, a lot of the, all of the committees at the moment are being done uh, largely remotely. Um, the social restrictions in places like where MPs congregate, so the tea room, the smoking room etc. Um, they're starting to reopen now but they're with uh, capacity restrictions. So a lot of my intake have not really experienced what it's like as an MP in Westminster right, right. properly. 
And one of the things that I was very keen to do in my first year as a member of parliament pre-pandemic, um, in Westminster, I wanted to go into the chamber a lot to observe more experienced members and see how they did things, what works in there, what doesn't, and learn from other people just by watching. Uh, and that hasn't been possible because of this. But in my constituency, I wanted to get out and meet as many of my stakeholders face to face as I could. So I'd go around all of my schools to, to uh, you know, meet as many of my businesses. And some of that has been possible, but nowhere near on the level that I was hoping it was going to be. Um, and I'm very much hoping that as we approach the potential lifting of all restrictions, that both sides of that equation start to change. So mm. almost two years in as a member of parliament, my intake can start learning how MPs function properly. Yes, exactly. Because we've all spoken in the chamber, we all sit on committees, we all ask questions, mm. but we've done it in this very strange atmosphere. Mm. You know, I've never faced, I've never spoken uh, in a chamber with, you know, the, the benches opposite me packed where I'm being hissed and heckled and, and whatever. Mm. So I've never had to deal with that. Mm. Um, and that's going to be a new experience. And it's the same for all of my intake. So it's, it's been a, a very weird first sort of year and a bit. But the context for this, though, Peter, is, is very important because this is small beer compared to some of the suffering that we've seen around the country because mm. of the pandemic. And so mm. I don't want to mm. lay a big woe is me yeah. card on the table because some people have suffered grievously because of this. Is it right that you're actually going to be going into a temporary chamber as well? Is that what's happening there? Is that, is that still happening? This is because Parliament itself yeah. is... Huge, you've got a huge restoration thing going on, hasn't it? So it it's has. actually closed? Oh, no, of course it's not closed. No, Parliament's open, but the, the, the current intention, it's called the Restoration Renewal Project, uh, is that the Palace of Westminster itself needs such an overhaul that um, before my time, it, it was decided by a previous Parliament that the plan would be as follows. They would build a temporary chamber, temporary House of Commons chamber, where Richmond House now is. On Whitehall. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they'd move the House of Lords into the Queen Elizabeth II Centre over the road from over over Parliament Square, um, and we would stay in there. So it would be decanted into there whilst they renovated the the Palace of Westminster. Um, that would save money and would probably well, it's alleged it would save money. It would it would probably speed things up a bit. My reservation about that because uh, there's some argument about whether that could be revisited and, and mm. changed. My reservation about that is that. Um, a future government that didn't value the history and tradition of Parliament might not ever put us back into the Palace of Westminster. So the House of Commons as it is now would become a museum or something like that. I think there's a real plausibility about that. Yeah. That's occurred to me, actually. This would be the perfect time to actually make a permanent yeah. change. And I, I, I would resolutely oppose that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the Parliament itself is one of the great institutions and symbols of our nation. Uh, it's a very historic place. You can feel the history when you walk uh, down the corridors there. Um, you know, the, the House of Commons chamber itself actually isn't that old. It was rebuilt after a Durrett hit from a German bomb mm. during World War II. But this is the same chamber that people like Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee, Margaret Thatcher spoke in. Mm. Um, and I would be loath to see all of that history and tradition scrapped mm. um, because uh, you know, an incoming government in a few years' time decided to renege on a plan that was conceived in the 20 teens. Um, so that it, it's, it is the current plan, but it, it could be revised, and I hope that it is. I hope that they do it in, in a way that they partially decant. So it might be, for example, that the House of Lords moves over the road, and the House of Commons sits in the House of Lords while the House of Commons is being done, and then they go back, and so on and so forth. Well, I mean, I do hope, Gareth, that you uh, you do manage to get his stand, uh, as you say, uh, from uh, from the packed opposition benches at some time soon. Uh, you know, that it all starts working as it should do. 
Um, where can people read uh, the book, The Common Sense? Where is, is there a link they can go to uh, to get it? It's on the Common Sense Group site, is that right? Yes, it, it's available online. It's available um, online. I believe it's been... I believe it's, I've got the link to it, which I, I think I've sent to you, which you, right. you're more than happy for you to put that up on, yeah, we'll on this put video that up. when it goes out. Yeah. Um, the Common Sense Group doesn't yet have a website, right. um, but it has been released online. I see. Okay. Well, we'll put that up. But but thanks very much indeed for coming on. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, I hope that uh, the um, collection is listened to by the right people. Um, and um, thanks very much indeed, Gareth. Thank pleasure. You. Good to see you. Um, that's it. Um, we shall see you next week. But as I said at the beginning, please do remember, won't you, to subscribe. Thanks very much.